0: Welcome to the Product Design Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Kulin, founder of UX Cabin, where we create world-class web and mobile apps. I'm excited to bring you a behind-the-scenes look into the lives of some of the most interesting and talented people in product design. We'll get strategic advice on how they got to where they are today and things they wish they would have known earlier in their career. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. We have... Jed Bridges. He is a designer from Southern California. Some of you might have seen him on Twitter, but we have him here in The flesh. So Jed, great to have you here, man.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Seth. I'm just super excited to be here and just looking forward to chatting.
0: Very cool. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you
1: are and what you do? Yeah. So I'm a, a longtime designer now. I think moving in towards the the second decade, really, so it's been a while now. I currently work as a digital designer, working on products, digital experiences, and a lot of stuff during the day, and like many, by night, I, I still do traditional print design, graphic design, and just various personal projects related to that, so... Day to day is is all design, and then design is also just a hobby and general passion of mine that I am trying to pursue and just become more knowledgeable and, and skillful around. Nice. So, how did you get into design in the first place? Wow, like so many, it all started with music. So back in the day, there was this movement called hardcore music. You might have heard of it, <laughs> and. The stars aligned for me. Something about the intensity and the passion of it all just swept me up. So I was in bands growing up most of my life, playing a lot of music in a lot of different bands. And if you've ever been in a band, you will know that it's very much like a small little production company. So you need content, (laughs) you need uh, music, you need uh, a website, you need merchandise, you need to advertise, posters at the time, CDs, (laughs) and you need to design a lot. So everyone in the bands that I was in dabbled a little, and I did too. If we needed something designed, I just started learning that way through uh, trial and error. So yeah, I would say early on, I just had a good mix of just digital and print and and everything in between, just all coming out of the the necessity of music and, and playing music.
0: That's really cool. So the music thing didn't quite work out from a professional standpoint, but you did end up getting into design. Did you go on to get like a degree in graphic design or did you just self-teach or how did how did that go?
1: Yeah, I did actually. I worked at a restaurant all of high school, washing dishes and outside of school, you know, I would work. And I also started taking on free, freelance clients when I was 15. I met a few people. I had been doing design through music for like a year and a half. (laughs) And so, yeah, a year and a half. I was an executive uh, vice president of design at that point. And uh, (laughs) for my freelance company. And yeah, I I met some people that needed consistent, repetitive design every month. They, They were like a small book publishing company. And they needed book cover designs and you know various promotional materials for for books coming out every month. So yeah, I was working at this restaurant washing dishes. And then I also had like a monthly retainer with this publishing company. And so that was my first big freelance client. It it actually brought in like pretty good money. At the time I thought it was good, at least compared to washing dishes. So I started thinking. This pays a lot better and I don't have to wash dishes, so maybe I should pursue this more. So fast forward a few years when when the time came to make that transition between high school and what next, I had a few like re- recurring freelance clients at that point. And I just thought, this is what I want to do. I want to go for it. So I went to design college. I went to the Art Institute of California in San Diego and took on a bachelor's degree there. And yeah, I loved it. I've always loved school. I've always loved formatted, structured education and learning. And I tend to do well in a lot of structure and a framework. And so I really liked college. I liked design school a lot. I would say it was a three-year program year round instead. So it was three years instead of four. And I really liked it. I would say the last year or even the last like half year was probably the most beneficial for me. I I graduated from there and just immediately started working full time. Wow.
0: That's awesome. I think uh, I have kind of like a similar origin story where I was like, you know, working at like for minimum wage and basically had a chance to do some like design work. And I got like paid a thousand dollars to build someone's website. Like this is infinite money. Like I can do anything. And I just felt. So amazing to like the possibilities, right? Yeah. And I think yeah. one thing that's like, if I could give advice to anyone out there is, but there's all different tiers of design work. So it's like designing for like Twitter or Google, like, you know, they're, they're going to try to get the people at the top of their game, but there's so many like small businesses or media, like, even yeah. medium sized businesses that can really use the help of people earlier in their career or even people like pre-career, like in your example, Mm -hmm. that you can like significantly help their business and make good money before you have like formal training.
1: Yeah, I was in school. (laughs) I was making freelance money. like, And it wasn't like a lot, but it was was more than minimum wage. And the restaurant I was working in, part of my decision was I would have been, I guess, 18 at this point. At, at the restaurant I worked at, there were people in their 30s making the same amount of minimum wage as me. And I just remember thinking, I don't want to be doing this for that long. So, right. what, what else can I do? Design was the only real thing that was even on the table. So, I was like, I just better go for this because I don't want to be here when I'm in my 30s.
0: Totally. And like, I think the other cool thing with like design is like, even if you don't go into it, it's a skill that you take. To So many other things, like certain skills start and end at the job, right? Like washing dishes. I'm sure your your family appreciates that you're well-versed in washing dishes, but like there's a ceiling to how far that can take you. So like, yeah. even if you learn a ton of design and do a bunch of work and realize you hate it, it's like, it, at least that helped you understand like visual hierarchy or some tools
1: or things like that. Yeah. Washing dishes, you learn like efficiency because <laughs> you it's a job you have to finish and you don't get to leave work till you're finished and you want to leave work and go have fun, right? So you learn efficiency, you learn a, a lot. And I'm, I'm a big fan of skills that directly apply to other things, right? So I, th- I think there's always stuff to pull out that directly applies to something completely different. So totally agree. Totally. Another thing to touch on with college was I actually freelanced for several of my design professors during college as well. And that was really nice because I was obviously working during college to pay the bills. And it was sort of the same as high school. I was working at a job, but then I also got to freelance with design during the college process as well. And freelancing for professors was really interesting. (laughs) I think that prepared me for my first job really well because it was different than freelancing without any sort of authority above me to answer to. <laughs> I have this right like, person now that I have to engage and interact with. And it, it added a whole new dimension to freelancing for me that I think like prepared me for after college. So that was really fun though, you know, getting to talk about my, like my uh, actual classwork with my professors and then kind of like after we were done with that, it's like, okay, now let's dive into the fun stuff. So how's that logo design coming? You know, getting into that stuff is always really fun too.
0: And another cool thing about like doing freelance work before you finish your training is like you build up a portfolio and you build up understanding of how like businesses work and what they need. Because I think someone who goes through design school or gets a degree, it's like at the end of that, you have projects and things, but it's almost like nothing really compares to real world work uh, as far as like portfolios go and, and applying for, for future jobs. Can you give us a little insight as to like how you got your first actual big boy design job?
1: Yeah, I would love to. My first job really came out of an internship I had at a place called Ninth Link. It's a agency in San Diego, downtown. And they are still there and they are still called nightflake, actually. <laughs> so I interned there leading up to ending college and I ended up working there part-time after school was finished. They had a pretty broad set of clients and a pretty broad set of meets. So, you know, on any given day, I might be working on a print catalog, working on an identity and logo design or sure. a, a website, a fully responsive website. And so that was, that was a fun place to work because there was just a broad set of needs. And sure. And so it doesn't get boring, essentially. It wasn't a re- repetitive process every day. Totally. How did you land the internship? Was that easy, hard? What did that look like? Yeah. Well, most design schools nowadays have entire departments with the goal of getting you a job or an internship, either during school or after school. Like, you actually have them as a resource post-grace, nice. which is really cool that, that schools do that. Unfortunately, if you want your internship to be accredited at the school I was at, at least, you could not receive pay. Now, really? Yeah. No, I was in a position. That's crazy because yeah.
0: mine was the exact opposite. In order for us to get an internship credited, it had to be paid.
1: Yeah. It was completely backwards in my mind. It was, I'm paying like $1,400 for this internship class. I have to get an internship to receive credits for the class and I can't be paid for it. So uh, it was a strange time. So what I basically did is, I'm not proud of this, but I basically asked around San Diego, like at every place I could find, if I could intern there, I basically said, I want to be paid. And... I was paid, uh, I think, $20 an hour. I had to. I was like, if I'm going to do this internship class, I need money because I can't afford to work for free. I literally couldn't, right? It wasn't like I was trying to be difficult with my school. I was like, "I I literally can't you know, work 20 hours a week for free. So I found an internship that would pay me just by asking around. And I I reached out to a few close friends. And really, I think what it was, the one I landed on was a recommendation from one of my design professors. And they really liked me. I, I felt good about them. And I ended up interning with them. And I basically just didn't tell the school I was getting paid. I asked if they could pay any cash under the table. And it I explained the situation to them and they were super cool about it.
0: Yeah, that's a strange requirement. So one thing I know that you have kind of talked to me about is like this idea of being like a generalist in your design practice and kind of having full coverage across product, UI, UX, print, everything. What's what's your strategy behind that?
1: Yeah, well, my... My fondness of generalism in design, I think, just came out of my own personal career experience where I would show up at a startup and startups are usually bootstrapped and you have to have a broad set of skills to get something off the door. And so you you learn those skills and take on those needs and do what you have to do to get something out. So I think ha- having pursued generalism for a while now, the two main reasons I am a fan of it and recommend it to people is number one, it makes you highly employable, right? So when you have a broader set of knowledge of design, it all feeds into specific moments of application that you can then apply to various roles and jobs and whatever your uh, job you're trying to land. A really good company, say like a big company, right? I work at a big company right now. I've worked at several large companies. It's really an ecosystem and a community and like a culture. And they will let you migrate from one place to another. And, you know, I would say that's a good company. A a great company will, you know, actually let you go to where your passion is at that moment. And because they know that's where you're going to do the best work, but where they know you're going to be the most interested and drive the most impact. So a good company will sort of put you in the place that they think you'll add the most value. And then a great company will actually let you go to within that culture of where you think you're the most passionate, because that is actually where you will have the most impact. So when you have a general set of skills, if you work at a large company, say, you can actually like find a, a space that you're passionate about. And if it's really limited, it's going to be hard. You're just going to be like, I just know conversion optimization. That's the thing I do. That's the team I'm going to be on. And it's much harder to explore if, you have, if your interest is ever peaked elsewhere.
0: Yeah, totally. I think it's also really hard to get your start as a really, really niched thing. Like, because you can't be an expert at something just, you know, like a year or two in and you kind of have to like hedge your bet on like, well, I'm good at this. I can do this and I can do design. I can do a little bit of research and just kind of having that attitude of like, I am super scrappy and I can go get anything. I'll, I'll figure it out if I don't know how to do it. And I think, um, you know, that opposed to someone coming in with like a, a very singular niched focus as like an entry level job is pretty hard to to break into.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think so. You're touching on a couple of things here that I think are important. And one is a common misconception with generalism. I totally understand the argument for specializing. But what I think is what people don't realize a lot of the time is being a generalist doesn't mean you employ the whole set of broad skills at a role. It means that you have them available to employ, right? So if I have these 10 things that I'm good at that all kind of summarize my design skill set, I'm not going to use those at a job. I'm going to probably use two or three of them, right? So being a generalist, again, coming back to being highly employable and highly adaptable, I just think that's a common misconception to sort out. Sure. It doesn't mean that you have to use them all, all the time. That would kind of be chaos, right? You'd become a bottleneck for a lot of stuff. It means that you have tools that you can pull out as necessary for specific moments and specific roles within a job, right? So I would not recommend you use all all of them at once. <laughs> I feel like it's right. a common mischaracterization of, of generalism. I was going to say,
0: like, a lot of things... In design carry over so much. Like if you're excellent at print design, okay, sure. You're going to obviously have skills in like setting up the print margins and knowing all of the specific sizing, but like visual hierarchy carries through from print design to product design to web design. And so yeah. many of those skills like reinforce each other, even though there's like specific instances of like uniqueness within each practice.
1: Yes, exactly. And and this is another reason I am fond of generalism, especially early on in people's careers, is it puts you on what I think is a good trajectory of learning. Because let's say, you know, if you established a base in graphic design history, you know what preceded the medium that you are currently working in. And that helps you understand and identify the patterns that point to new emerging mediums. And so if you study the evolution of print design and you know at what point that medium began to break down and why and what the solutions that came out of that were, it actually helps you design in the current digital medium you're in. And so I'm a huge fan of knowing where all of this stuff came from. And I'm partial to that because that's how I went to design school is year one is just history and back knowledge. That's all you do the first year is you understand how did we get here? And I feel like that is such a rich and beautiful part of design that almost like people just don't even know exists. You know, that's why a lot of my tweets get a lot of heat, man. I'll tweet stuff that was like, we learned this on like the first day of school and it's important. And. A lot of it is in conflict with current best practices. So all I'm saying is it's really important to know that stuff because you can't even design right now for like five minutes without reading like 20 words that all link back to like 800 years ago, padding, kerning, letting, like all of color theory. There's so much that we know from the last 800 years of design and there's just such a richness there that i think people would like really enjoy if if they dove into it more most of the vocabulary we use in software design is still referencing the printed physical world so you know why wouldn't you want to learn that stuff it, it's really interesting that's super cool
0: yeah that's funny what type of heat do you get on on twitter like people just calling you out for being like a dinosaur or no like no just wanting to argue
1: well you know, Twitter is not the greatest place to have a, a back and forth conversation. Um, I'm aware of that, and so I'm pretty nuanced as a person. But on Twitter, it's like I don't have time for nuance. I have a few characters. I So you know, I'll say something like, "If you want to get good at digital design, you should probably get good at print design because all the best websites look like print design anyway." Like you know, I'll just say like blanket statements that are yeah, yeah, design. yeah, yeah. And I'm not trying to be provocative, but I I totally get how it could come off that way. I'm just I'm being, you know, mostly honest, but kind of joking. It's like, you know, the, the most beautiful websites I've ever seen are the ones that utilize like a really strong knowledge of print design. Like all these universal principles that were developed in print. Repetition, hierarchy, proximity, rhythm. When I see these in use, I see a beautiful website, right? So it's like, yes, I'm kind of kidding, but like Also learn that stuff because like we said earlier, all skills feed into each other, right? So when people ask me, how do I start learning visual design? I want to work on apps and websites. I say two things like design an app and design a book. And if you can do both of those things really well and see the common patterns between the two, they both share the exact same problems. And then you have to come up with the exact same goals for both. And just seeing how those those solutions overlap with each other in two different mediums. And then knowing that there's like a hundred other mediums too. It's really interesting to find those overlaps. That is fascinating. I
0: think you are the first designer we've had on that is speaking about like the benefits of and knowledge of print design, which I think is a really, really important perspective. Totally appreciate that. I think you also kind of nailed it with like Twitter strategy. Where if you want to like get some engagement, you gotta know that like 80% of your tweet is true, but say it like it's a hundred percent true yeah. and you're going to bring out so many emotions, but that's great, like if, you know, you gotta like be okay, taking that heat and, uh, and understanding that like people are going to come out and be like, actually one time that your scenario didn't happen to me. <laughs> and you're like, okay. Thank you for uh, adding to my uh, algorithm to show this on more people's feed.:
1: <laughs> Yeah, Twitter strategy, is, it's important. I, I think the, the main thing to keep in mind is, who do you want to attract, right? And then just, just go all in on that. you know I mean, we know that only the sit deal in absolutes, but <laughs> um, But on Twitter, just tweet in absolutes, and you will attract the right people. And the people that you don't want to attract, that you don't want in your, you know, online network or circle, they might not understand, and that's okay. Just be kind and gracious. Like, don't be me. But it, right. I think I think it's okay to try and get a little edgy on Twitter. Tweet in absolutes, and we all know the deal. Like, we all know that <laughs> that there's nuance to life and nuance to the world, right. and and all that, and that'll that'll kind of flush out over time. So. Yeah, you want to attract the people that not have the same interests as you, but that will just, you can feed off each other, right, in some way.
0: Totally. I think it's really funny how like there's kind of like the inside jokes of Twitter where you'll respond with like a sarcastic comment and like most of the people will be like, oh, okay, I see what he's doing here. That's funny. But then you always have a few that are like so bothered and pressed by it. And it's like, it was like, yes, got him.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, take joy in that. Yeah, that's <laughs> no, I know. I knew I was doing Twitter right uh, when like people started texting me pictures of like crocs and stuff. I was like, what is happening right now? It's <laughs> on the top of my name when you see something with colors. So yeah, I just don't all into that. <laughs> love it. Love it. So
0: personally, for me, I found like a lot of, I've received a lot of like business value from Twitter for like Mm -hmm. anything from like finding teammates on there to getting help with like different technical tools to even finding work. Curious about your experience. Has it been, you know, just something that's like personally enriching or is it also benefited like other aspects of your life for like, you know, business or freelance work or anything like that?
1: Yes, very much. I would say Twitter and Dribble have been instrumental platforms in my career as far as getting work meeting people i think the last seven or eight years like my last three jobs have come from either dribble or twitter and i think one thing that's important is you know obviously networking is very important but you want to have a niche with the platforms that you choose to take part in and be a community member of because the real goal is when someone needs design, that you want them to think of your name, right? And the more specific that gets, the stronger your name stands out. That That's the hope, right? So I would just recommend that people try and have some sort of niche or focus or or category that they generally like touch on. Like it doesn't have to be all you talk about, but you know, when someone says like, I really need an e-commerce page designed, who's the e-commerce name that comes up? Right. It's really good to be that person. You will have a lot of work if you can become that person of the person's name that everyone thinks of when this category or this topic comes up. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of opportunities there and having a niche for your voice is, is a really useful way to meet people and get work. That's really fascinating. And
0: it's funny because the meeting I was just on before this call was someone who was in my network and just reached out just because they they had kind of continually seen the podcast clips and things like that. And it's like, I think one distinction is like you don't have to be the e-commerce guy or the design guy. You just have to be connected with The person who sees you right so like sure there's yeah there's a thousand million people better than me at design and ux but they're not connected to all the people i know or the people in my location so for anyone who's like connected to me that's like a business owner or sees my stuff number one they wouldn't be able to evaluate me compared to like someone better than me because they're in a different field and and people do work with who they know. So if we are kind of connected, if we've talked before and I have a way that I can help serve your business, like more often than not, they're going to reach out to me over anyone else because they're familiar with me.
1: Sure. that That's a really good point that I didn't mention is usually most of the time there is an added layer of in between the path from you to the client connection. Or the the job, whatever it is, where it's usually someone you know in some way. So, yep. so yeah, yeah. I, I made it sound like it's you're the guy that <laughs> that when something comes up, you know, people know your name somehow. But what I what I left out was what you're saying that there's usually a layer of someone that knows you in some way, right? And they yeah, and they connect the two. So yeah, that's that's totally right. That's been my experience at least. Is you know. Is a job will open up that you know someone I know says, "Hey, this really matches Jed's skill set. I've seen his work on this before, and they connect the ends, right?" Basically, yeah. So that's right. I mean, getting
0: a getting a warm intro to like a design position, like gets you to the top of the pack, like no, like yeah. nothing else. Yeah. Like if you can have a warm intro to someone for a project you're going to stand out so far above any random person who applies. It's not even funny.
1: Totally agree, especially with hiring. It's like, I've been part of interview processes at, at several of my jobs in the past. And a job opening will come up. At a large company, it's not uncommon to get, you know, over a 100 applicants, sometimes 300. And what do you do from there? Right? Like, how do you, how do you even right. process that? And large companies will have full teams that vet things out and work with recruiters to get down to that, you know, maybe two or three or four. So I don't have insight into that process. But when you don't have a recommendation going into a job interview, it becomes significantly more competitive because you're not part of that like final 10. You're part of that like 300, right? So right you don't want to be in that position when you're jobless. So if you're right. jobless, you don't want to be in that position. When you have a job and you're looking for a new job, it's not as bad because you can feel more secure and take larger, bolder steps towards leveling up and, and all of that because you have a good job or, or a job. And But when you're jobless, you you do not want to be in that position. So networking <laughs> is very, very work. Yeah.
0: Um, so I be, you mentioned that you're you know, have been involved in some of the interview processes. I'm wondering if you could give any insight or tips from the other side of the interview. What are you seeing as far as people interviewing today and for product design, UX jobs that like is good or bad or otherwise that you could kind of advise on?
1: Yeah. So interviewing in general, it's a bit weird to me. Uh, (laughs) I'm not an expert, but... I have been on teams where we want to hire some roles for the team I'm on and I get to be part of the interviews there. And interviewing is an interesting skill and it's a skill set that you only use for interviewing, right? So in my experience, the skills necessary to interview are not used at work at all. You don't use those Skills like at work. I've conducted interviews with like live design sessions where it's it's like for the next thirty minutes, I'm going to give you a problem and I want to see how you think and I want you to design a solution and I want you to present your solution for the thirty minutes. And then I end that with, by the way, I understand this is ridiculous. This is completely unlike what your job would be here. You would never do anything in thirty minutes, and I'm aware of that and. I didn't come up with this just so you know, it's <laughs> like, very sympathetic to interviewers because some of the processes we have are completely unrealistic with what their day-to-day job would be. So, you know, live interview tasks and stuff like that, I think can be useful, but I have a hard time making any real judgment on someone based on a 30 minute, like, problem and design solutions sort of back and forth that I almost don't even use that in my evaluation, even though, you you know, I was supposed to at the time, but yeah, what I look for that's important is, you know, obviously culture bit, you want to make sure that this person has the qualities that make them seem like someone that you would want to interact with every day at work, because that's really what you're interviewing for is, does it seem like, and, and this is in my situation where it's usually been, this person would be on my team, right? Is this someone that that I would be okay seeing and talking with every day and usually some of the red flags there are they complain a lot right so my current job is awful they don't take any ownership for why right and and the reason that's a red flag is I just know after a certain amount of time I'm going to become that and I you know the the thing is there's is no utopian dream place to work so I know that if you're complaining about now It's just a matter of time before you're complaining about working here. So that's fascinating because like people, even
0: at like Google and Facebook typically leave after like two or three years and they go somewhere else. Right. Like the, the place that has like all of these crazy benefits and the best of the best, you know, atmosphere, I would say a majority of people leave and go on and do something else. Maybe like a really like hard startup. So it's like, yep to your point, it's never going to be somewhere where you're like, I know I'm going to be here for the rest of my life because it's perfect.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Cultures, like I just, companies are just big cultures, right? So a big tech company, it's very hard to control and it is not going to be easy. Working in a large tech company, you're going to have to be like a very tough person and you're going to have to be like very okay with not knowing exactly what someone said or meant and you have to be very willing to give people the benefit of the doubt and not assign ill intent to them right off the bat. You you have to be able to assume no ill intent, right? So when someone speaks harshly, or when they're not kind in their dealing with you, when they just seem rude, try not to react immediately. Like chances are they're just having a bad day and they're going through something hard at work, and you know that's coming out. So you, if you're going to work at a big tech company, you Really do have to be able to not assign ill will like right off the bat, and just just you know just give it some time before you you uh, take any action there. Startups, the teams are smaller. It's a lot tighter. It's a lot more easier to control culture and stuff. So yeah, that's definitely like you were saying. People tend to leave a big big company after a couple of years, and yeah, the two year cycles are pretty common. And I, I think that's when people start to realize like oh like I'm actually not going to get to work on what I thought. The team is not actually going the way I thought it would. I'm not shipping what I thought I would be shipping by now. I'm not getting the promotion that I thought I would. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's not easy working at a giant, giant company because culture is hard to control. What other red flags do you see when you're interviewing? Some of the other ones would be, I guess, an overemphasis on process. So process is important. It's a framework for telling the story of the work, but a lot of the candidates I see, they, I would say 90% is just talking about the process, right? So what they did, what the process of getting the work done was, what issues came up, what happened. and, And for me personally, the process is a loose framework for telling the story of the work, the outcome, what the end result was, and what the impact of that result was. And the process is that's not the end all be all for a presentation in my mind. I've been in interviews where someone talked for a full 60 minutes and the last five minutes they showed the result of their work, which was like a graph. It was like literally just a small graph on a dashboard and they talked about user research and all these meetings they had and, and getting, getting executive buy in and, and all that's interesting, but it's like, I really just want to see what you were able to uh, accomplish and what the outcome was and what the impact was. And so, yeah, I would say an overemphasis on process is another red flag. That's really funny because I think yeah. there's a, a corollary to
0: like cooking, right? If you make, you know, like some really awesome brownies, like the people who are who are receiving those care about the taste, they care about the end product, and they care, you know, about the result. Like, I'm sure it's interesting to know. A little bit of like how you made them. oh, I want to have the recipe. I want that process. But like people aren't there to spend you know the majority of their time listening to how you made those brownies. They're there to see the final product and the results and like how how good it tastes.
1: And I think there's probably a corollary to like design, you know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember, I think it was like 2011 or 2012. I actually put out like a few blog posts about the relationship I was seeing between design and cooking and people just made fun of me because I didn't know this at the time, but I guess that was like a well-documented like observation and that people had <laughs> already been writing about that. And they were like, and anyway, I had no idea at the time I was just making these connections personally and writing about it because I thought it was really interesting. And, and then, you know, I, I blogged some of it and. Yeah, it was not, it was not well, well received. Apparently I was just mimicking other people. But yeah, there are a lot of similar similarities with cooking in terms of, you know, it's a culture of people working together. And yeah, I guess the last red flag that I see often, and it's a bit concerning to me is, I guess this is a two part, but people will rest on their pedigree. Just way too much, in my opinion. So they have an overconfidence based on where they've worked in the past. And I have worked with designers from Google. I have worked with designers from Uber and all of the tech companies. And I have never worked with one that was better than like just some random designer I worked with on a freelance project. So I feel like we need to remove this like lens that we view these people that have worked at all these names that we know, right? They have good brands. So we think they're special in some way. That has not been my experience at all. I've worked with a designer from Google that had huge accolades, right? That had a, a massive pedigree of their background and their history of where they worked. And they were unable to complete basic tasks that we needed for for the freelance work. And there might be reasons for that, That there might be like good reasons for that. And their life at the time with how much work they had and and other things, right? But I'm just saying, I think we need to get rid of this perception we have that because they worked at places with a strong brand and I use the products and know the name, that somehow they were responsible for any of that. And, you know, in my experience, right, they had almost nothing to do with any of that. And so I don't care about pedigree in a design and I don't care where you worked, like almost at all, right? What I care about is the work you're showing me. And I want to know what what your role was and what the impact was and I don't care if that was for a huge brand that I know or if it was for like a small restaurant I I don't really care so yeah pedigree is something I think not good in the industry right now people are like way comfortable based on their work history
0: yeah it's kind of like the people who worked at like google twitter facebook it's kind of the equivalent of saying like you got your business degree from harvard or you went to like (laughs) you know some some prestigious law school
1: where it's like oh that just like speaks for itself like you're you're obviously amazing the, the problem is you can't replicate the environment from those places anywhere else so i worked with a designer at facebook and she would try and replicate the design work how it was done there and it's like this is a whole different team this is a whole different company with a whole different set of processes constraint like and she kept trying to replicate it, and it just didn't work. So that's why the pedigree issue is important for me. Is if we want to hire based on you know past experience of these big names, you have to ensure that they're going to be able to replicate any successes they saw at those places, right? And in, and from what I've seen, that's very very hard to do. I've never actually seen it done done well. So that's funny because like you think of all of these big places and those places
0: probably have a lot of additional like support that smaller companies might not have maybe it's like once you get in there you have so much you know different support and collaboration that it's like like you're saying it's not really corollary to like a small startup or an agency where you have to wear multiple hats or you have less support on you know research or design or otherwise it's not really something I've thought about
1: before, but uh, that's, that's certainly an interesting perspective. Yeah. What, one of the interesting emerging things from that in the design industry, I think, is for the first time in the last few years, the artifact of your work and your career, it's okay that it was just process, right? Which I think is common at really large tech places. It's like when you leave a big company, the work you have to show, the artifact for that time. Is literally just the process. And, yes. and what that shows is th- that companies that are actually valuing just be like be here and work hard and have a brain and like give us your brain, right? <laughs> and and spend put in time, work hard, and and you know at the end of it, a lot of designers don't have anything to show but that the artifact of the process they did. So anyway, I, I'm saying this as a way of encouragement. If you're a designer sure. working at a big company you know, try and orient yourself to have, have some actual, you know, impact that you can speak to when your time ends there. I think the average employment time in big tech is like, yeah, two, two and a half years. So keep that timeline in mind and map out. Okay. So that would mean in six months I would need to have this done. And then in six more months, I would need to have this done and try and have some actual impact outcomes. Like when the time comes to move on.
0: Yeah, yeah totally i I mean i know people who have worked at places like uber and worked on a feature for like literally a year and then it not get implemented yeah for one reason or another and like that is a grind that's like a different mental grind than i'm familiar with because i'm used to working on like 50 different features across like six different clients all before like 11 a.m just you know the agency
1: life well, that feeds into something we've talked about before, which is imposter syndrome. Yeah. And this is something I think everyone has at some point. I had never had this until like recently, which is funny. But I've been thinking about it more because I've just been experiencing it for the first time for the last probably year, year and a half. And I think when you you know have been doing it a while, you get a little older and you, you start to see trends shift and younger people surrounding you more. And it's it's really exciting, but at the same time, it's like, you can feel like, why am I here? Like all these people could do this job I have better than me. Like, what am I contributing really? And I feel like part of imposter syndrome is with tech pay scales being what they're at right now, it's an amount of money you would never be able to earn elsewhere or being self-employed or having us small business the amount of people get just you know their base salary stock options like all that adds up to this amount that is like so incomprehensible right like it makes you feel like i'm basically being compensated for more value than i'm able would ever really be able to produce you know so (laughs) so if you've never been fully freelance which you know i've been for a few years you just have a really strong appreciation for the honor and miracle of getting a consistent income That is such a a blessing to like have. And I, I, I just, I hope everyone working at a tech company understands that is, is this is like, it is an absolute unbelievable miracle of, of modernity that, that we can have stable, steady incomes, most of which are more than the value we produce. Right. So anyway, just to circle back on that, what I'm saying is for me, I'm well aware of, you know. How much I'm compensated and that it's, it's more than the value I bring. Right. And that makes me feel uncomfortable sometimes. And like, you know, would I be able to make this much like on my own? Like, like I just start to doubt myself. So, so the whole topic of imposter syndrome, it's just okay to feel that way. Like, you know, it's, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay to feel like you're not good enough or that someone is better than you. And chances are that those people feel that exact same way about you. You know, so what is important is, You know, knowing that you're trying your best, that you're on a trajectory of continual learning, and that when you are working with other people, you're actually trying your best to make it a nice environment. And, uh, you know, you can tell when people are personally trying to improve versus they're trying to improve other people around them. (laughs) It's like when you're focusing on yourself, I think it gets it oddly gets both outcomes. Like the people you work with actually feel better and you feel better, you know, whereas if you're trying to improve the people around you, it has none of those outcomes. So mm. anyway, I would turn around a hold there. sorry. <laughs> no, that's great. I think that's
0: super helpful. The whole thing of like imposter syndrome is really just like another way to say low self-esteem. Yeah. And yeah. some of that's like really helpful because that's like an area of growth. And some of that is just like, you know, unfounded. Right. So it's like, when we feel this way, what do we take from it? Like, what truth do we take from it? Is it, do I really do need to improve on certain areas? Because that's a appropriate response. Or is it, am I feeling bad about myself because I'm doing some sort of unhealthy, yeah. Yeah. like, yeah, I'm comparing my like my worst day to someone's best day and feeling bad about that. And just being able to like take a step back and say, okay, I'm feeling inadequate for whatever reason there's probably pieces of truth and, and falsehoods in this feeling and just being able to like, like you said, accept that you're feeling that way and, and figure out what is the truth or what is the takeaway from this?
1: Yeah. I, I think one of the takeaways is just know that you are inadequate and that's okay. You know, instead of trying to fight that feeling, that that's what I do at least is, yeah, like (laughs) I, I, I'm not as good as I want to be and I'm not, where I want to be. And that's okay. That's not an actionable thing I have to worry about. It's because I know that every day I'm trying my best. I'm on a trajectory of learning and improvement and I'm trying to help improve those around me. And so just knowing that it's a feeling right, and it's okay to feel that way. It doesn't have to be actionable. But what I have found that works well when you do feel that way is two things. Number one is just take time off. Like if chances are you're just mentally fatigued and that's what's driving those feelings. But like, You just need to rest a little and you need to depower your brain from your work thinking. Like just stop thinking about work for, you know, a week, take some, take some time off, take a few days off. The other thing is start talking with younger designers. This is huge, right? So you don't understand how good you really are unless you're dealing with people that are just starting. And so when you're only surrounded by like the best designers in the world, which, you know, at big tech companies, you really are surrounded by these like unbelievable people. They are like steeped in the industry. They've been doing this a long time. They have acquired skills through trial by fire. And you're just around the best of the best all the time, right? But if you go talk to someone that's like year one, year two, That's confidence building because you understand how far you've really come because you have a baseline to compare yourself against now. Like, whereas if you're just comparing yourself to the top of the top of your work, it's hard to see that perspective. So yeah, if you have imposter syndrome, just start mentoring young designers that are just starting or just anyone. They they could be doing it longer than you, but you'll find that you have a skill set they don't have. And what really helped me with this is at one of my past roles, we did this personality test as a team. So like your sub team of 10 or 20 people, you all take this test and it gives you like a color. Uh, I think there's like, I forget what it's called, but there's like, you know, red, blue, green, gold, orange. And they're essentially, each color is like a different personality type based on like these 50 questions you answer. And what it really showed me was my brain is just different than some of these other people. My personality is way different. And so I was comparing myself to some of my coworkers with like, how are they so organized and efficient all the time? And their brain is like perfectly structured to communicate exactly what needs to be communicated at the exact right moment. And they can pull up all these beautiful files. And anyway, I was comparing myself to them. And then after we did that personality quiz as a team, I was like, oh, I have skills that they don't have. Like, right? we just have different things, you know? So, yep. uh, So that's a big part of it too for me is, Imposter syndrome is usually when you're comparing yourself to people that aren't better than you, but they just have different skills. Different than you. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think that's a super
0: helpful perspective. As we wrap up this interview, curious if you could kind of round us out with looking back over your career and thinking about what advice you would have given to yourself starting out that maybe you wish you had known. That might be helpful for someone else who's starting out in a similar position to you
1: earlier in their career. Yeah, absolutely. A couple of things come to mind. I guess things I wish I had done is develop my own process. So early on, I would show up to jobs. I've worked at a lot of agencies. I've worked at a lot of startups and try and integrate myself into the existing process that was already there. And what I found is processes that are already there are usually worse than a new one that you can bring into the table coming in as a new person at at a personal level, right? I'm not talking about like an overall team process or strategy, sure. but for your day-to-day work, have a ritual and a process that you can own and develop and refine over time. So that when you do show up day one, you know exactly what to do, right? And no one has to tell you what the process is there because processes are not like really repeatable from job to job. I, I've never really worked at a company that had the same sort of flow or day-to-day process as another one. And so, yeah, that's something I wish I had done. Was just develop my own sort of, you know, process that I know works from sure, documenting it, trying it out, refining it. Uh, I wish I'd done that sooner. Another thing is, this is something I was thankful just sort of happened by luck, but you need to get good mentors early on. I feel like there's not a lot of discussion around how to pick a mentor. The problem right now is if you ask someone to be your mentor, they will say yes, right? (laughs) So the, the problem there is not everyone should be your mentor. So I think it's on a designer to really think about who should be my mentor, because honestly, anyone you ask will probably do it. So what I think is useful to look for is look at people that aren't just successful in their career, but have the type of, I guess you could say, like off-work life that you would like to have. So look at someone's life and say, is this how I would like my life to look in 10 years? So if someone is crushing it at work, but their personal life is not something that you find appealing or desirable, don't choose them as a mentor, right? If someone is like doing some great work pushing out some amazing products, but their family life is falling apart and they're not a good parent because they're overworking. That's probably not the mentor. Right. You. So, so we need to emphasize, I think the, not just like they're successful career wise. So that makes them a good mentor somehow, but you know, are they a good dad? Are they a good spouse? Are they a well-rounded person in addition to being successful? Right. Sure. How would go with those people? I'm thankful to have really good mentors that you know, over the years that have helped me tremendously and sure. the last thing is very practical. I would just say become really financially literate. This is something I have not done till recently, and I wish I had done like at the first onset of my career like right when I started, I wish I had become more literate in how to save money, how to invest money. I did very little of that until you know recently and and even just knowing how stocks work and Chances are you you might have some vesting stock from a tech company you're working at at some point. How you approach that? How to plan your time at that company around those monthly vestings? And just knowing all the ins and outs of just financial literacy, how to save, having a rainy day fund in case, you know, you get laid off. It, it happens. And yeah, I wish I had done that a lot sooner.
0: Those are fantastic pieces of advice for design and for life. So Jed, thank you so much for coming on. Maybe you'll be my mentor. <laughs> Will you say yes if I ask you? No, I'm just playing.
1: Mom want to get to know me more and see what my life's like. My want to reconsider
0: No, no, I'm just I'm kidding. You this has been a lot of fun, Jed. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk and share your journey. I know it's going to help a lot of people. So again, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Seth.
0: Thanks so much for hanging out with us today on the Product Design Podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, be sure and go follow our guests. Let them know. They did a great job and you learned a lot. Um, More to come in the following weeks as we bring on new guests. Please hit that subscribe button so that you will get these podcasts uh, and learn a ton about the product design community. Excited to see you next time. Thanks.